Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. This episode, we're continuing John Caldwell's book, Desperate Voyage. It's chapter five, Sunk. Early on the morning of June 7th, I lashed my little pneumatic raft to the base of the mast, heaved my sea bag of rocks aboard, I had taken the tools out of the bag when they showed rust and substituted rocks, and sailed for deep water. Under a hard easterly breeze, sharper than usual for these waters, I put her immediately on a westerly course and made for the open sea. My destination was once again the Galapagos Islands, the lonely volcanic group lying on the doorstep of the southeast trade winds. My first stop would be Seymour Island, where an army weather station was located. That is, it would be my first stop if the army base wasn't closed down. The last word I had received before leaving Panama from fishing boats recently in the Galapagos was that the army expected to be out by July 1st. This gave me 21 days to make the transit, more than enough time. I figured I could make it in 11 days. My plan was to haul up there for a week, check my boat for her running and standing gear and for her hull, then shove off into the southeast trades and race non-stop across the ocean to Sydney. With the hurricane season crowding me for time, I had no alternative unless I hauled in somewhere en route for three or four months till navigable weather returned. In case of necessity, I had charts and sailing directions for likely island groups along the way. If trouble came, it would be easy enough to put in for repairs or send a cable. When the perlas had faded from green to blue and from blue to grey, I began thinking of what course I would steer to make my destination. I was in somewhat of a quandary about what to do. But remembering that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, I laid a ruler flat on my chart and drew a straight line connecting the Perlas and Galapagos Islands. This line was my true course. It lay southwest. All I had to do now was to sail straight down it, and after a certain amount of time, lo, there would be land. I soon learned that in deep water sailing, theory is one thing, and actuality an astoundingly different thing. The fresh easterly breeze began to wane by late morning, but it had enabled me to make a good offing. The perlas were now low down on the horizon astern. After starboard, the Panamanian mainland was a thin, fog-like shadow. I whiled away the morning on the deck with my feline crew. The tiller was lashed, and Pagan swayed gently and sailed smoothly as beam seas rolled under her. My native hat toned down the sun and my comfortable rope sandals kept my soles clean. I was stripped to shorts. About mid-morning, I cast out the fishing line, baited with the tail of a yellow jack. I had hauled aboard the day before, and in twenty minutes I heaved a throbbing Spanish mackerel over the transom for the kittens. They were the most antic little devils I had ever seen with a flapping fish. Hardly a day passed that I did not see them in battle with something I pulled up. The act was the same every day, but it never palled. At first they approached the fish with a cat's normal curiosity. A sniff tells them it is a sort of crepe Suzette, cat style. They jump viciously upon the powerful fish, growling for a tooth hold. With a violent flip, the fish sends them bowling across the deck and they scatter wild-eyed, tail flying to the foredeck. In a moment, the rich smells begin to torture them anew, and they come creeping cautiously back, innocent-faced, hopeful-looking. 
They move up beside the victim, crouch low as if to eliminate themselves, and sniff distantly. Then bunch up tightly for the spring. I drop a hammer behind them, and trigger quick they fly scampering to the bow. They wait a moment or two, then peer wonderingly around the deckhouse corner with round, bright eyes. Down the deck, they descry their quivering dinner. Once more, they sink slowly, belly down, along the deck, range up beside the delicacy and sniff deliciously. Throwing caution to the winds, they pounce athwart ship of the fish and growl wolfishly. Like a desperate cowboy, they cling for a few wild jumps and again scurry away, spitting as they go, tumbling over each other. Patience is a game that is never taught. It is learned. Much to my entertainment, these goofy little cats never learned it where fish were concerned. Right up to the day that I tearfully parted company with them, they were a riot of humour. About noon, the fresh breeze of the morning waned perceptibly. This was the first weather item recorded in my log. I was using a notebook for a log. It contained 90 pages, with a page for each day's reckoning. I figured I would just be filling it when I hove in sight of Sydney Harbour. Not knowing the proper procedure for annotating a log, if there be one, I just jotted June 7th, 11 o'clock to 12 a.m., wind slowing up. Thus, the voyage began. For lunch, I had island fare, an avocado, the butt end of a pineapple, two bananas and coconut milk. Tied gaily to the mast were two stalks of bananas. Rolling along the decks were coconuts, avocados, mangoes, papayas, pineapples, taken from the abundant jungle before I sailed. These, I figured, would be the last fresh foods before Australia. Often a meal was nothing more than a can of beans, ripped hastily open and eaten from the tin. Meals were fancy or simple in turn, depending on how I felt, and a lot of other things. Sometimes I shared the cat's daily fish, and at others it was easier to lie out in the soft sun, sleeping the day away, than go below for the can opener. In the afternoon, the lagging wind veered to northwest and suddenly stiffened, kicking up the first white caps of the trip. At nearly sundown, it was stronger and had hauled around to where it blew out of the west, causing a confused sea. A scud was flying in from over the horizon. Pagan had a considerable tilt to her decks, and I found myself wondering at what precise moment does one decide to reef, and when one does, how is it done? I had played at reefing down in calm weather, but now, with wind beating at the bow and bow beating at the sea, it was all so different. I went below and perused my handbook on how to sail. Alas, it was designed for harbour sailors and those who haunt protected waters. Not one word breathed it of the reefing ritual. I handed my way out of the sloping cabin onto the wet decks. I searched the low, lowering clouds for a hint of the extent of weather. Nothing I read helped me. So, this is the Pacific stormy greeting, I thought. I looked around and saw that the lee rail was awash. Pagan quivered lightly. Her timbers creaked. The wind was definitely higher. A welter of water was surging under her, beginning to hiss and howl in the way of mounting seas. I wasn't sure that now was the precise moment to reef down, but I concluded it was a darn good one to do it. How to get the sail off. How steady the spar in such a wild setting. The Indians say the best way to do a thing is to do it. But on a boat, there is a proper way. One doesn't unbend the halyard, then heedlessly allow the wind to whip it from hand, as I did. 
Such negligence is dangerous because the sail spills its wind and flails wildly at loose ends. The sail can be split right down the centre, the Marconi clips ripped from the luff and four or five seams strained and rent so quickly as to leave the sail in six shapeless parts in a matter of seconds. The reason I know this is that that is just what happened. In the brief minutes that I clutched at the wind-whipped halyard, my sail flew to spare parts. I raced to it and fought with its thrashing ends. The unruly boom swung across and across with maddening persistence. I clung rashly to it as I made to put the sail in stops, and in the twenty minutes or so required to lash down the sail, I must have seen each side of the deck a thousand times. When I finished, there seemed to be more lightning than before, and the spray stung more. I discovered that in dousing sail, I should have eased the tiller accordingly, for now I was footing it before the wind in all haste toward where I had used the day in coming from. In a questionable manoeuvre, I worked her around and suffered a few heavy slops of water as she broached, but I managed to heave her to the starboard tack with tiller lash slightly to windward and with headsails aback. I watched her point hesitantly into the gathering night. Now and then a heavy sea caroomed off the bow, throwing it high. A coma curled under her, dancing her about. So this was all there was to heaving to in a storm. Child's play. Just let the mainsail blow itself to pieces, leave the jib and staysail up, lash the tiller a weather and hit the sack. Expensive, but simple. As I stared into the night, I began to feel a flutter in my stomach and the faintest hint of lightness in the head. I flattered myself by calling it weariness and went down to my pitching bunk. Pagan's cabin was having Hell's Mary time. There were the rattle and clank of gear gone adrift, the frantic to and fro race of water in the bilge, the vexing warmer temperature of the cabin, the weak whine of the wobbly cats as they fumbled about sickly. Finally, the wash of angry water against the planks, gurgling suggestively as it does, became a liquid knell to whatever peace I had thought I felt. I groped, full-jowled, out into the screeching night. On my knees and clinging to the shrouds, I fed the fish. The wind was intoning a terrifying whine to resounding crashes of thunder and sea growls, and between feedings, I grew increasingly conscious that I was in a rising gale. More darts of lightning flashed and more wetness was in the air, smacking of heavy rain and nastier weather. The jib was bellied out to maximum. Since it was an old one, I instinctively felt it would soon go. The staysail was standing the gaff and the main boom was snug in her crutch. I stretched out in Pagan's lee waist and a bilious nothingness completely enshrouded me. I could think a little and feel a little, but beyond that, I was nothing. I knew the jib was straining, that any minute it would rip out from its fittings. She was shivering by the leech and quaking the decks beneath my stomach. I turned, numbly onto my side, and watched the grim, hopeless match between boundless nature and man-made trivia. The jib shivered mightily as a man will do under a withering load. A hank parted company at the luff, there was an intensity of already frantic motion. The aged, fraying bolt rope snapped, followed by a stringent rip of the sort fat boys make when they bend too far. At the bat of an eye, the hapless sail was in tatters, and its bits were whizzing off astern with the driving seas. I attempted to pull myself together and view more sternly what was happening. The wind was still on the upgrade, 
The sea, growing angrier, was swept into foaming windrows. Lightning had grown to the intensity of daylight and flashed on and off like house lights. The air was laden with bursts of rain. With Stacel aback, Pagan was holding her own, but floundering. Now that I had pulled myself to, I was sensible enough to be scared. Plenty scared. The Stacel, I could tell, had reached that precise moment when a reef was required to save it. I loosed the halyard, but clung tightly to it and dropped the frantic sail to where I could get at the reef points. Reef, point by point, I tied in the unruly strings. Staysails are uncomfortable members to deal with. You mustn't even consider reefing one down in heavy weather unless prepared to take at least a dozen buckets of water in your teeth. Then there's the sail itself to contend with. It pounds madly about your ears. The bow rears and plunges, wild horse-like. With all sail off, the boat rolls, and upon the foredeck there is nothing to which you can hold. No wonder I once heard a yachtsman refer to his imperious wife as my staysail. I studied the screeching night airs before going down below, and what I saw didn't improve my seasickness. Pagan had incorporated a wild roll in her behaviour, and the swelling seas were beginning to bounce her about. She was falling off before the wind. It made me wonder where land could be. Down below, I put on my life jacket and squeezed the cats between it and me at my chest. Such tight quarters displeased them, so I took them out. I cut open an old-type life preserver and removed its cork floats. To two of these, I attached a string, and to the end of each string, I tied a kitten by the hind leg. Then I went on deck and tried to feed the fish. But I had what is called the dry heaves. The more I strained, the worse I felt. I felt so useless, I looked at everything and said, so what? Sheets of spray whipped over the weather bow. The wind screamed in the rigging. A raging sea was coursing astern. The staysail had a press of wind that set her a quiver, affecting the whole boat. What the devil do you do next? I thought, and went below. The cats were in a bewildered ball of legs and corks and strings. I sorted them out and sat on my bunk with them in my lap, disturbed by the noises I could hear and by my imaginings. I remembered someone saying at Panama that the best place for a storm sail was the mainmast. I didn't have a storm sail, but... I cut a dozen small lengths of one-inch line, dragging out my aged spare staysail. I toted it lamely up to deck. The short lines I bent loosely about the mast. To each such ring, I attached a clip connected to the leading edge of the sail and heaved the sail aloft with the main halyard. Because of her loose foot, she strained considerably, but she did the work of a storm sail, and Pagan reared up and about less often. I dropped and furled the staysail and hurried below. The cats and I had dozed off into a questionable sleep when I was disturbed by the obstreperous beat of a rent sail. I found the little storm sail split from foot to peak, her frayed ends pointing to leeward. Pagan, of course, was wallowing violently. What to do? Lightning was throwing the night into brilliant confusion. A series of squalls was lording it over us. It is said first things are worst, and this was my first storm. I was beginning to fear my little boat was heading for the port of missing ships. Such moments as these, when one doesn't know what to do next, are enough to make one vow to take up harbour sailing.
Hagen was lying in the trough of the seas. Boiling water, breaking over her beam, threatened, I thought, to turn her turtle. I hastened to unfurl the staysail as a last resort. A heavy lump of water pitched into my ear, nearly knocking me sprawling on the dark deep. On an impulse and a fear, I heaved my sea bag of rocks outboard and crawled into the safety of the cockpit and wondered what the effect would be. The bag sank, but at the same time it dragged and Pagan's bow swung smartly upwind. It was deep into the hours of morning. Seasickness, weariness, anxiety had chafed at my reserves. I trudged down to my bewildered kittens and slept. At close on daylight it happened. Luckily the wind had abated, though the seas were running high, or it might have been worse. A sledgehammer blow smote Pagan on her keel. We were wrenched from sleep and flung to the floor. The cats yowled. I jumped to my feet and stumbled before I could walk. A rattle of displaced gear and rending timbers like Satan's pitchfork pounded on the cabin. I started for the hatchway, but I was knocked flat almost instantly. Pagan heeled dizzily and a dozen noises fought for supremacy as she shuddered from the shock. In a moment she righted, but another thump on the keel sent me sprawling again. I was sure we had run onto a sea-pounded shore. The thought reeled through my head. Wrecked! I was glad I had my life jacket on. I groped for my cats, for I feared I would have to make some desperate leap onto jagged rocks, and I didn't want to leave my crew to perish in the hold. In the melee, they had dived for cover, but I fumbled upon the cork squares, so I ran on deck, cats a-dangling. I had expected to see the towering shadow of land leering down upon me and a shore of bristling rocks reaching for Pagan's tender planks, but I didn't see this at all. Instead, at my very feet, was what seemed the body of a mammoth whale, its tail roiling the waters off to the right. And on the other side, another whale, only smaller, was churning about lazily. I had heard of whales attacking small craft, but the absurdity of it in a storm... I was petrified, lest the monster erase me with a sweep of its broad tail. Then the outlines of that broad tail took a clearer shape, and I made it out to be not the tail of a whale, but the limbs of a drifting tree, a tree whose girth was such that its lumber would have made two or three or even five pagans. Its bowl lay beneath the surface, its limbs awash, and the whole of it rose and fell with each sea. Evidently, making sternway in the storm, I had come backing off the crest of a wave and landed atop it. I shoved the yowling kittens below and made to fend the obstruction off with the boat hook. My efforts against a limb were of little avail. Pagan was pivoted athwart it, reeling with side-to-side motions and thumping with rebounds that were too much to take for long. Heavy rollers crashing onto the forest giant twisted it beneath the keel, exerting a shifting pressure against Pagan's timbers. She groaned deep in her parts with the whole-souled complaint of a wounded man. When a dozen seas had pounded us and the keel had wallowed an inch at a time its full length across the tree, it worked away and we floated free. I hurried below and searched by light for seepage or hint of damage. I could see none. However, I saw something flash silvery in the bilge well under the ladder. I strained my hand through the water till it struck something slippery, fleet, full of life. I pursued it and caught it and tossed it on the floorboards. A squid, a live squid in the bilge, 
full two inches long, a half inch around. I immediately thought of a leak somewhere in the hull, large enough for him to slip through. I went out into the cockpit, where the bilge pump jutted up from the aft end of the cabin and pumped Pagan dry, and observing the bilge, I watched a determined trickle of water flow rapidly into it. Another search over the ribs and planks in the cabin and below the waterline revealed nothing. She had sprung a leap, deep in her timbers, possibly somewhere along the keel and its adjoining strakes. I decided on the moment to head for the closest land. I could think only of Del Rey. I pumped the filling bilge dry and put Pagan about. Unshaking the reef from the staysail, I hauled it aloft and belayed it. I pulled my sea bag anchor aboard. In greatest haste and perspiring in spite of the cold wet wind, I uncovered my good jib and lugged it topside and strung it. I regretted that I had been so careless as to blow out my good mainsail. I needed it badly. Under staysail and jib she ran off before the wind, pushed helpfully by stern seas. I put her on a course of east by south, assuming that during the day and through the storm she had slipped a little north. One part of the sky was darker than the other. The sun was rousing from its bed and the headsails higher up were catching the faint light. I made the Perlas Islands dead ahead. I pumped the bilges and thought I observed that they had filled a little more quickly than before. As a precaution, I started the engine and gave her full throttle ahead. Even in the short time I had engaged the engine, the bilge had filled. I worked the pump till it sucked dry, a sound dear to the heart of a seaman on a leaking vessel. But even as I finished, I could look into the well and see it refilling defiantly. Pagan was making fast time, but it wasn't fast enough. I thought of the spare mainsail in the sail locker and what it would mean to have it flying. I started below to break it out. A disturbing sight met me. The bilge had filled and overflowed. An inch of water was standing on the floorboards. I jumped back to the pump and pumped till I tired, and the bilge was dry. I stared eagerly over the white caps at the colourless land, and it seemed a long way off. A half hour went by. I never took my eyes off the islands except to watch the bilge fill. Del Rey was about eight miles distance, with Punta de Cocos still further. On the port beam, San Jose was about five or six miles off. I must have stared too long at the land, for when I looked down, there was at least three inches of water washing over the cabin floor. The leak was growing. I took to the pump and worked it at an aching pace. I changed hands several times and still water gurgled in the bilge. When at last the pump hissed dryly, I sighed and peered anxiously over the long miles to Punta de Cocos. I could hear the splashing of new water in the swaying bilge, so I took to pumping again. After pumping a seemingly overlong time, I found that I had hardly gained on the raising water, and in the time taken to peer below, I had lost the gain. I jumped to the tiller, unseized its single lashing, and changed Pagan to a course of due east. I was now scudding her towards San Jose, three miles to leeward. Once more I stood by the pump. The water inboard had risen alarmingly. Its slopping had wetted down the bulkheads, and my cats, curled and shivering in my bunk, eyed the rising water disdainfully. I pumped furiously to outpace the water. Ahead was an open beach. At its extreme left end stood a jagged promontory behind which was a protected shore. I had no alternative but to put Pagan on it. I heard that seamen under compulsion had often run their craft ashore for repairs or scraping and painting. I altered course three points to port and stood bow on towards shore. 
I worked madly at the pump, afraid to look at the distance yet to go. Suddenly, the motor sputtered, coughed raucously, and fizzled off to silence. I took a quick look at the engine. It was covered by water. I leaped back to the pump and worked it fitfully. I was hoping Pagan's momentum would carry her well in, because the tiny head sails barely pulled. Slowly, slowly the shore closed in. I jerked still more wildly at the pump, but Pagan was settling. Water lapped at the gunnels. Below, the cats were crying mournfully. I knew that they had been washed off the bunk. I expected to see Pagan dip her rail under and sink at any moment. Then, ever so slightly, the keel scraped bottom and she steadied, losing her way. The kittens swam out the hatchway into the cockpit, towing their cork blocks. I tossed them atop the cabin and hurried to the work of dousing the headsails. Then I busied myself with making Pagan fast to the shore. The decks were awash and the insides were afloat. I undogged the fore scuttle, dropped up to my waist in the hold and fished out a two-inch hawser. This I clove-hitched to the bit, the free end I fastened about my wrist. I grabbed the kittens and gave them a toss shoreward. They splashed about 20 feet from the sand. I dived from the bow and came up near them and saw them as they attempted the impossible, trying to claw atop the bobbing corks. I took their corks and towed them the few feet to the beach. Leaving them to shiver beneath the cold sky, I led my line to a mangrove stump and secured it with a round turn and double half hitches. My feline mariners, with salt in their eyes, which is to say shipwrecked, tottered weakly up the beach, weary of the sea and its vicissitudes. Suddenly they saw the towering jungle loom up blackly and glare down over them with all its silence. With minced steps and yowling complaints, they swore at their seaman's lot and squatted back on their haunches to berate their wetness and fright. I scooped up my seamates consolingly, poor little sea-weary blokes. Up till now, my only name for them had been Kitty, but under present circumstances, a name for each naturally evolved. The little blonde female I named Flotsam, and the darker Tom, Jetsam. Unfortunately, their name day wasn't a joyous occasion. They spent it under a bucket on the beach, out of danger, so they wouldn't stray to the jungle to become menu items for a crocodile or a boa. I sat on the damp beach and viewed the dreary picture of my boat, foundered to her scuppers on an uninhabited isle. Right before my eyes, she heeled over and settled to her beam on the watery bottom. Her port rail cleared the surface, and the mast appeared about three feet away, slanted skyward at an unseemly angle. It told the story of a shipwreck, and still drooping from it was the tattered storm sail. Chapter 6 Castaway That morning, seated on this unfriendly beach, and staring at Pagan's sunken hulk, represented for me very nearly the low point of the entire trip. I concluded it was hell to be a greenhorn. What a laugh. Sydney or bust, I had said when I pulled out of Panama. Now, 60 miles away, my boat was on the bottom. Only 8,440 miles to go. The cats seemed to sense my rancor and snuggled deeper in my lap. I swam back to Pagan. It was heart-rending to stand on the sloping decks and muse over the hopelessness of the situation. I had thought I was in a bad way the day I had run aground at Ila Senora. 
I proved myself every inch a seaman by the foul language I used that morning. I cursed and ranted with all the invective I could lay my tongue to, and when I finished, strangely enough, I felt infinitely better. Seated as I was on the one dry spot, the upraised beam was a familiar experience. Thus far, I had almost as much sea time aboard Pagan on her beam ends ashore as keel down in deep water. The trip that everyone had deprecated because it would be too boring was getting a little too exciting. I had gone aground at half tide. In an hour, most of the deck was uncovered and water was lapping around the keel, knee deep. I climbed down and waded about the scarred hull, searching into her every scratch. Under my hand, the little boat had taken a considerable roughening. She had proved her mettle. It was sensible to presume that if the spunky cutter could possibly be repaired and floated, she could easily run the Pacific Traverse. My introduction to sailing, at Pagan's expense, was easily read in her scraped and scratched under timbers. I opened the portholes to free some of her inside water, and as the tide fell lower, I submerged head and shoulders into the engine compartment to unscrew the little seacock in the curve of the bilge. The inside cabin was a frowsy raffle to delight a junk dealer. It was a headache I refused to consider for the moment. I was interested in Pagan's leaks. I didn't have to go far to find them. The garboard strake on the port side had sprung at the stem, exposing the cement-filled bilge. Much of her corking had worked out of the seams, and through this fissure mainly the seepage had come. But there were other injuries beside this, the rudder post had been wrenched from its keel seat. A few of the planks seemed disturbed where they fitted into the stern post and stem, and the propeller flange was bent. I noted the defects, and noted they could be remedied. From inside, I'd searched out a hammer, screwdriver, nails, and an old shirt. I nailed the strake flush in place against the keel and into the stem and stern post. Using strippings from the shirt, I corked the seams temporarily with the screwdriver and hammer. Of necessity, I worked fast. The tide would soon be flowing back. I drove myself so she would be ready to take the water when it returned. I met the approaching tide as I crawled from under the last of my temporary repairs. There was only time now to secure her against leak on deck, to batten scuttles, ports, seacock, and seal the companionway off. The sea marched up the beach, encircling my boat with lapping fingers and feeling at the repairs as if to escape through them. I watched. Pagan lifted buoyantly on the flood as she had done beneath me before. Her leaks were only a driblet of what they had been. I offset them with a few turns at the pump. At full tide, well after dark, I drew my jaunty craft as close into shore as possible and moored her tightly with her keel thumping on the steep sandy floor and the bow pointing into the jungle. Wearied with labour and anxiety, I trudged up the beach to my wailing starvelings. In all the excitement, I hadn't touched food or drink all day. I was so thoroughly jaded that even the thought of going back to ferret out a can of fish for my mates from the morass aboard was an abomination. In a few minutes I'll go, I said. When I got up to go, it was daylight. The cats were gambling about. It was a fair day. The tide was ebbing. My boat lay parallel to the beach line. The work at hand beckoned. But first, we were ravenous, the crew and I. On board, I found that all the labels had washed off the cans, so potluck it was. I reached among the rows of cans and grabbed two. 
They turned out to be diced pineapple and spinach. The cats, forced to face the ups and downs of a sailor's calling, whether they liked it or not, had diced pineapple for breakfast. For me, that morning, cold spinach from a can beat ham and eggs all to blazes, and the pineapple dessert was better than any cup of coffee I had ever tasted. For the next ten days, I lived the life of a royal bohemian. I wore not a stitch. For a hat, there was my matted crown, long since in need of cropping. I had not shaved since Panama, and for that matter, I had long since vowed not to shave until I was with Mary again. Barefoot and golden-browned, I lay to on my little boat, mending her scarred and strained timbers for a return bout with the sea. My food was potluck, fished cold from a can, and the selections, as they turned out, were usually monstrous. But I rounded off my diet with fruits and vegetables from the jungle. Hard by were a grove of bananas and an abundant mango tree. Farther on, I found avocados and green drinking coconuts and papayas. I responded wholesomely to the fresh foods. My work showed it, and my full sleep and my appetite and my exuberance. I bunked in the sand under a lean-to rigged from my staysail and oars. Such sleep, such appetite, such brotherhood with life as I felt in that rustic period I have not known before or since. There was but one thing missing, Mary. But had she been there, there would have been no haste with repairs because there would have been no repairs. During those ten days, I worked long and hard. When the tide was out, I strove at Pagan's hull with what tools I had at hand. When the tide was in and my staunch little cutter was pounded about on the beach, I pieced together and patched my battered mainsail, sewing its big three tears and making of it a new sail, stronger than before. In addition, I patched and strengthened seams in all my sails, re-sewed bolt ropes, spliced cringles anew, and attached the hanks and slides more securely. The job of cleaning house and stowing most of the gear on the beach at the foot of the jungle was a day's work. It was the work done before any other, and it left me with only my boat to repair, and, as I hoped, sail out again. The garbed planks I ripped off, plugged the old screw holes in strake and keel, drilled anew, and re-screwed them more securely than before. I corked the seams with special corking cotton brought along for the purpose, using a screwdriver for a corking iron. I covered the seams with lead patching full length, puttied and painted over all. I put a lead patch down each side of the stem, overlapping where the planks joined in, likewise the stern. I thoroughly scraped and painted her down to the lead shoe on the keel bottom. I reset her rudder post and hammered the propeller blade into plumb, and then I was ready to think of horizons again. By far the weightiest problem concerning Pagan was the means of refloating her and kedging her off the beach. I had no anchor, so I concerned myself with this matter first. It was apparent from the beginning that I must make an anchor of sorts since I had nothing. I could use it in its stead. My sea bag of rocks was useless as a kedge. What I needed was something that could grip the bottom offshore, something toward which I could pull Pagan if I were able to get her afloat. I felled a scrubby tree on the jungle edge and dressed it down to two suitable timbers, one long and thick, the other short and thin. The largest and strongest I used for the shank of my anchor. Diagonally across its end, I fitted the shorter piece, four feet in length as its arm. 
On the ends of the arm, I nailed long flukes that would sink into the sand no matter how the anchor lay. Such an anchor needed no stock or ring, but it had one weakness. It floated. I remedied this by binding to it two slabs of lead sawed from Pagan's keel, one at its crown and the other at its upper shank. I stood, looking at the sea and my stranded boat and estimating the distance between. My former experience of going aground helped me. In the beginning, I laid in Pagan's bilge and on her floorboards a number of heavy stones to steady her by their weight against pounding at high tide. The strategy to float her now was await the tide and, since most of Pagan's heavy stores were ashore and the stones on her floor were heavier than they, toss them quickly over. Accordingly, the little craft should bob up. I could then kedge her away and anchor her. I inflated my pneumatic rubber raft to carry the kedge anchor off astern into deep water. A half dozen rods offshore, I eased the hand-hewn anchor from the raft and watched it gulp from view. I rode back ashore and sat beside Pagan's cache of stores on the jungle fringe. Flotsam and Jepsam crept into my lap and together we watched the first investigating lips of the inbound tide nibble at the keel. In a while, Pagan shifted about uneasily, thumping her beam on the sand, tending to skew around. When the tide had flooded sufficiently, I tautened the kedge line and seized its bitter end to the traveller. My boat floundered between her desire to rise and the press of the weight in her bilge. As fast as I could, I heaved the rocks over the side. Pagan buoyed up, Beautifully. I heaved on the chain, the kedge held, and off I went to anchor. My chief concern was whether my boat was leaking. If she was leaking, it meant I must return to Panama for repairs. If not, I was determined to press on. I went below and flashed a light along the planking and into the bilge. Everything was tight. Not a drop of water issued from the outer sea. When I came on deck, the bow was pointing out to open water as though instinct had pulled it there and as though a prayer had been answered. The same wicked intuition that had inspired me to sail alone from Panama now egged me on to make for the open sea. It was late afternoon. I was anxious to be going. I pulled my rubber raft up to the transom, stepped into it and rode to where the tide tinkled on the strand and Pagan's gear lay heaped beneath the sail and where Flotsam and Jetsam yowled beneath their bucket, the very bucket that was later to save my life. For the next three hours, I moiled with transporting the gear from the beach to the decks. At dusk, I made my last trip, with the affrighted kittens staring innocent eyes from atop the last of the stores into the blackening water. In less than an hour, I was lashing the little rubber raft under the staysail boom forward. I heaved the freak anchor aboard, and secured it on the forepeak. Pagan sails were spread, and billowing to a soft breeze, she stemmed out of the little bay. Something intuitive told me that this time it was real. I was on my way into the vasty deeps of the Pacific. Of course, I thought of returning to Panama to check my repairs. It was the wise thing to do. But when, in an hour, not a drop of water showed in the bilge, and when I reflected on the near month I had already lost, days, even hours became precious in my race with the hurricane season across the Pacific. The very fact that Pagan was again afloat and making her own way made me feel a thousand miles closer to Mary. At midnight, 
when I had made a safe offing, I set the prow on a track of southwest by west, lashed the tiller, and turned into my warm bunk with my mates. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.